Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you'd like to support us, there's a number of ways you can do that. First, by checking out our books over at autofocuslit.com books, which is where you can also find a t-shirt with the logo for this podcast on it which you can buy as a way to support us and to advertise for us on your body. You can also sign up for the newsletter, which is starting this year, over at autofocuslit.com email. You can also use the app you're on, most likely, to rate the podcast or maybe write a quick review if you like it. And finally, of course, you can just Tell some friends who you think might like the show or our books. Okay, that's the advertisement. Here we go. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am Michael Wheaton, publisher of Autofocus Books, producer of this podcast, and author of the essay, Home Movies, which is out in February from Bunny Press. Today's episode of The Lives of Writers is hosted by Kevin Maloney. Kevin Maloney is the author of the novel, The Red-Headed Pilgrim, which came out last year from $2 Radio. He's also the author of the story collection, Horse Girl Fever, which is out later this year from Clash Books and the novella Cult of Loretta, which came out in 2015 from Lazy Fascist Press. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Kevin in conversation with Mike Nagel. Mike Nagel is the author of Duplex, which came out in 2022 from Autofocus Books, and now the author of Cul-de-Sac, which is out today as a little surprise release to start the new year. Mike also wrote the music for this podcast, in a column called The Unintentionalist for the literary magazine Little Engines, which ran monthly last year. All right, let's get to it. This is Kevin Maloney's conversation with Mike Nagel. I have, so I'm in a different spot right now because um, a couple weeks ago, me and Janessa moved in with my parents-in-law. It's kind of a sad way to start, but my father-in-law had a stroke oh, about six months ago. And we kind of saw this coming, but through different circumstances, it became clear, like, we just need to move in and help out for a while. So yeah. they have this, like, two-car garage that they rent that is, like, a kind of family room. So we bought one of those, like, mattresses on Amazon that, like, pops out of a super tiny box you'd never think it could fit in and uh, made kind of an apartment back there. So... It's like me, my wife, our dogs, my parents-in-law's dogs, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. So it's a big change because we don't have any kids. We're not used to, we're not used to this at all. So yeah, it's a big adjustment. So wait, you're all crammed into one little room then, or? No, no. We they have a house. Me and Janessa and our pets are crammed into one little room in the back. But they oh, have yeah. like a traditional kind of suburban house with like a couple rooms in it. Okay. And what what where are you recording this podcast then? Like I'm in my father-in-law's old um office he so he actually he so he was a tr- printer by trade uh-huh. honestly maybe one of the last like traditional printers in the u.s like he had Whoa. his own 
printing press and printing shop. Um, so he mostly worked out of there, but he has an office in the house that I take over every once in a while when I need to get some work done or have a little privacy. So I'm in his room. He did this cool, like, three-toned design oh, back yeah. here. <laughs> Beautiful. So, yeah, it's a For good people spot. who can't uh, see, there's, like, what was it, dark brown, baby blue, uh, <laughs> a real nice color scheme going on that you're missing out on. Real nice. My, my father-in-law also, as a printer, was, a, like, an expert at colors. He was the type of guy, like, like the whole scene, like, what you had to mix to get exact colors. So sometimes we'd, like, show him something in a magazine or, like, a print on a tablecloth, and he'd, like, get his – he'd always carry this – like magnifying glass and you could say like oh this is like 18 percent magenta and like four <laughs> percent yellow whatever the hell and he's like you think this is blue but actually it's aquamarine or some so i'm sure these colors were chosen very intentionally amazing and so does yeah. that mean you're still in texas right now or where where geographically are you yeah that was one of the convenient things my parents we live in a town called plano we're on the east side of plano where our house is and my parents-in-law live on the west side of plano so we are like 10 miles down the road from our house so of all the inconvenient places we could be this is the most convenient oh gotcha yeah. and are you still able to are, are you work from home or i last i i feel like i only know you through your books and i don't know how much of that is 100 percent real um <laughs> yeah but i know you as a one-time junk mail writer and your, your newer book has you working at a mortgage company so what's what's that part of your life looking like <laughs> yeah good question i am i'm work from home i am a, a professional junk mail writer proudly still Okay. Um, by which I just mean it's a marketing job, and I do write <laughs> I do write junk mail um, for a mortgage company, and I, I they sent us home in 2020 and never brought us back. So I mostly am working from my parents in law's house at this point. Yeah. And do you feel like uh, writing junk mail or marketing in general is that like crept into your author voice at all, or are they totally different parts of your brain? Dude, it's such a good question. And I think about this all the time, like how much has being a copywriter and writing marketing influenced the way I think about writing? And I think in a lot of ways it does. And I think it's this, that I just assume I'm losing everyone's attention all the time. Yeah. Like marketing is a completely flipped version of writing where somebody, I am paying to force somebody to read my work, like as much of my words as they will read. And yeah. the usual attention span is about three seconds in a headline, it's like 10 words. And you just assume they're trying, they want any reason possible to leave what you're saying. Yeah. And so I think even in my own writing, I have this paranoia that I'm losing people all the time. I don't take ever for granted that they would want to turn a page. So I think that's why in my worst cases, I'm a, I can be a little bit like tap dancey where I'm just like, stick around. It's going to be funny. <laughs> a paragraph, like try to like have a laugh a page and like keep them turning the pages. Cause I think I'm just so used to, my day job where people just want any excuse not to read this garbage well i'm probably your ideal audience in that sense because i get bored so quickly and so maybe i'm <laughs> yeah. just like you're, you know i have no patience with some when my attention drifts um so I, yeah personally i wish more people maybe i guess worked in copywriting i don't know <laughs> yeah like there's literally in when i was taught the art of junk mail writing which is truly an art i actually have a lot of respect for it as like an art form yeah. but they um they teach you that, that most people read their mail over the trash can and if something doesn't grab their attention within two seconds it just goes in the garbage and so like there's I do the stakes. same with novels I don't like so you know. <laughs> totally <laughs> I can be similar dude yeah I need something to grab my attention quick and then you can tell when an author takes your attention for granted mm -hmm. and I was reading something from Vonnegut recently like he was just saying like 
when he taught creative writing, all he talked about was being like a good host. Yeah. And that it's just your job to show them a good time. Um, and you can tell when books are doing that and when authors are aware of like, I'm just trying to like, I, I'm trying to, you, you're my guest here in this story or whatever it is. And they don't take for granted that, that you're not going to leave because for sure people can at any moment. Yeah, I, I read a biography of Vonnegut about uh, how he like, he was like an afterthought. Like they tried to hire someone else for Iowa and he still wasn't that famous yet. And he was like the last person on their list who finally showed up. But <laughs> everyone was like sort of like surprised, but like in love with him as a teacher. And like uh -huh. the first thing he would do is draw on the blackboard like a diagram of how to keep your readers interest and he was like coming at it from like a sci-fi perspective and i think yeah. at the time iowa thought it was real highbrow and whatnot yeah so, uh, yeah yeah he just didn't fit in with the culture but he saw it as like a science you know <laughs> i love that i did he start there like right before slaughterhouse maybe i think he was like working on slaughterhouse when he was teaching there yeah so, so. he hadn't like fully popped off yet at yeah. all and then like a minute later he was like on the live broadcast of the moon landing or something crazy unbelievable like, dude yeah. i was reading i think so i just read have you read timequake yeah i recently i loved it yeah. i love it i just reread it because i actually just officiated a wedding this past uh -huh. weekend if you can believe it somebody <laughs> asked me to do that and uh they didn't want it to be religious which i guess why they asked me and so i quoted kurt vonnegut in it and i quoted from timequake and then i was like after i pulled the quote i ended up just reading the whole book again because it's just so good but um yeah, at one point he talks about, I think when he got hired at Iowa, that I I don't think, I, he doesn't mention where it was in the scheme of things, but he talks about how like all of his books were out of print before Slaughterhouse. And it was this one editor who came and like published Slaughterhouse and revived all the books. But like he came very close to, I think, just being a nobody at yeah. all, like just lost to to history it's crazy to think how close that was uh, yeah i mean speaking of you know popping off and becoming famous i feel like you've like burst onto the literary scene <laughs> take it over um so in terms of like just things outside of writing books uh you've guest hosted this podcast and you had the the unintentionalist column i like uh, i'm curious about like what kind of stuff you do outside of strictly writing books how have you enjoyed sort of um having a column or uh doing this podcast type stuff you know what, what do you do as a literary citizen i should say oh that's a great question too i feel like i i've been in the this world for so long i feel like you have too like i feel like i knew your name forever um that you were just kind of in the mix like with the hobart people and with like the kind of early twitter days i can't even say how i knew you i just like you were just in the ether yeah and so like that's where I, I started. Live. Yeah. And <laughs> that's just where Kevin exists all the time. Um, yeah. I feel like I was, I was actually talking to Adam Voith about this just a bit ago. We were hanging out in Seattle and like my first 10 years publishing, I was maybe publishing like five or six essays a year, but I felt like I didn't know anybody. Like, I think I had like three DMS in my Twitter account from that whole time. Like I wasn't part of it was on me. I wasn't being a good active literary citizen. I didn't really know how I didn't really feel invited like and I'm not good at inviting myself into things anyway. Mm -hmm. Like I just felt like something was going on without me and I actually came very close to just like kind of hanging it up right around the time Wheaton picked up the book. Um, and so in a weird way, like getting to know Michael Wheaton and getting connected with autofocus, having the book come out and then getting to know Adam, who I did the column with those two relationships have been like some of the definitely the most meaningful literary ones I've had and important ones in my real life. So I feel like it might citizenship, even though I've been in this for like a decade, started like two years ago. And I'm just kind of now starting to 
get my feet under me right as Twitter is dying and the whole thing is changing. <laughs> the like, party's over. Welcome. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's how I feel. So, yeah, hosting this podcast has been great. Like, it's, I love, I love talking to writers about craft and what they're thinking and why they did things the way they did. But I like, I like the podcast format because it's so much more. I mean, I had a column called the unintentionalist, but I like the intentionalism of getting on the phone like with somebody to ask them questions instead of just like shooting them stuff over dm or something like that so are you like a craft nerd in that way do you love talking about like breaking breaking down the line and whatnot or i can get pretty into the craft for sure i like knowing what like what were you thinking when you changed subjects here or when you uh like why was this i just like i know like i think people have a a lot of people are operating on a level where they can't really express why they made the decisions but every once in a while somebody will have really thought through like why something was done the way it was and if they have an answer i love knowing what it is um so i can get into the craft of it for sure and so uh the unintentionalist i feel like uh little inchins posted that that job's up for up for grabs so are you officially retired from that column is that what happened <laughs> yeah yeah they kicked me out for sure he was so <laughs> totally so <reasonable>. done <laughs> we uh we had so we kind of just talked about doing 12 at first so 12 was just in our heads um we had briefly talked about continuing it, but I ended up doing 12 and just felt like, I think I think this has kind of run its course. In ways, I honestly kind of was disappointed with myself. I thought I would find a little bit more of a point along the way. Like, <laughs> Even though your books like, are about how there is no point, right? <laughs> I know, I know. I should have known it wasn't coming, <laughs> and it didn't. And I, I like sometimes would kind of write about other books, like more like a review and so people have been really cool about it. Like we, Adam just put out like a little abridged version of it um, as like a little one-off thing. And like people's reception of it was so warm and welcoming that it's it's been awesome to see. But in ways I, I kind of called it because I was slightly disappointed with myself. Um, but I mean, the gift of that was Adam Voith has been such, a, he's just such a cool dude. Like just getting to in, like work with him every month, bounce ideas off of him, build something together. That whole year was a real gift for me, for sure. Um, but I'm kind of, kind of glad it's over. To yeah. be honest, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so you said you've been doing this forever. You know, like ten years. You said. Uh, I'm curious about how you got into writing specifically, and I ask you that because, like, I know you're also a pretty amazing musician, which always <laughs> blows my mind when somebody on Twitter, like a writer, admires, like, oh, listen to my album, and I'm like, wait, what? You're doing? <laughs> like, I think uh, Dan Hornsby was just dropping some music on Twitter. I don't know yeah, if you know dude, him, just, and I was like, yeah. Are all of you also recording albums on the side? Like, what <laughs> yeah. the hell's going on? Are we supposed to be doing albums, too? Is this part of the whole thing? <laughs> Wheaton's actually a talented musician as well. So really? Yeah. Oh, you guys all got to get together and have a show at AWP <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. That should be what the rock and roll reading is next year. Is we just oh. actually play rock and roll in between. So, yeah. Were you, um, like, a rock and roller in high school? Or were you writing? Or were you doing both? Or Yeah. I think I came to writing pretty late, actually. I, I started in music for sure. Like, I bought a drum set when I was 10, I think. Like, out of the paper from this old couple. It was this awesome blue sparkle jazz kit that was in their garage. It was gross and, like, 200 bucks. And I've never loved an object more than I loved that set of drums. Uh, oh, yeah. I just wanted to hit stuff. I just, I, I've always been drawn to just making as much noise as I can. So then I bought an electric guitar after that. And then I, I really thought I was going into music for a long time. Like I've played in like some blues rock bands and deep Ellum, And 
Uh, yeah, I thought that was what I I, I, I thought that was what I was gonna do. A but real I, practical I, career choice, yeah. dude. Totally. I was talking to Adam about this because Adam Voith is actually in the music business and like knows like some real shit. And we were talking about how how quickly music can become embarrassing. Like it's one thing being in a band when you're 20, and when you're 30, all of a sudden being in a band that's not successful is like kind of really could be embarrassing like, yeah you have to ask your friends to come out it's loud it's distracting so yeah i kind of fell off of it when i was like right around the time i picked up writing actually i think i maybe traded one very loud embarrassing hobby for one very quiet <laughs> embarrassing hobby but of all the i've had like writing is so perfect for somebody who's introverted like me somebody who doesn't feel invited to the party because you can do it for so long. You can fail at it for so long with nobody knowing. Yeah. Like, nobody knows how many essays I sent out to editors that didn't want to publish them. Like, Or even how many essays did get published on little magazines no one's ever heard of. Or essays that shouldn't have been published. Like, it is a great way to to get all the embarrassing stuff out of the way without much attention on you. So I think maybe that's what I was drawn to. Like, around when I was, like, 21 or 22, I started writing every day. I can't remember. I You know, I got a copy of the best american essays i think yeah out of like the one dollar bin at, at barnes and noble and something about that issue just i didn't know what essays were at the time and something about it just clicked i was like this something about it made me want to give it a try and it took me like another 15 years to to even get okay at it <laughs> and how, how, i don't know if you were like deeply into bands or if you recorded a lot on your own but like you know i how do you feel about like the dictatorial nature of writing where like until an editor gets involved later in the process, it's all you as opposed to like getting a wrangling a bunch of band members together. And, you know, I know. Yeah. I think I love it. I think I love being just so maniacally in control of what goes on on the page without having to ask anybody's opinion. I think I'm very sensitive to people's opinions. Like as soon as somebody doesn't like something, I think, Oh yeah, that must be really stupid. That's yeah. not worth continuing. Like I'm not the, I'm rarely the one in a room that can push my idea forward. Um, like if I'm in a group of friends and I say, I want to watch like um, There Will Be Blood and somebody else wants to watch The Grinch, I, we're going to watch The Grinch. I'm not going to be the guy that I don't push. I, I back off way too easy. So yeah. the way that writing can kind of, you can like just be so precious about it at first. It actually like really syncs up with with my fragility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so like, so you're making this pivot somewhere between 21 and 25, it sounds like, away from music and more towards writing, you know, a natural switch to a more practical career choice. But um, like, what what were the, were there books you were reading then? Were you reading stuff online? Were there books you read in your teens that just took a while to marinate and make you want to write? How did, how did who were your big influences? Yeah, that's such a good question. So one em embarrassing one that I've decided I've told myself I'm going to admit is that like <laughs> up until my early 20s, maybe late teens, I was like really heavily in like the evangelical Christian world. Um, me, like actually a few of us kind of sync up on that. Like Aaron Birch kind of came comes from that world. Yeah. Adam actually does as well. Um, and there was this one book that came out called Blue Like Jazz um, that I don't know if you've heard of that book. Um, no, I haven't. Have you heard of Anne Lamont? Yeah, yeah. Bird so by Bird? She, yeah, she wrote Bird by Bird, and she wrote this book called Traveling Mercies that I actually, it is a spiritual book, but I still think it's beautiful. I, I've reread it recently, and it's, it is legitimately great. And this guy kind of wrote another version of it called Blue Like Jazz. Um, but so, that book is 
it's just es- essayistic in nature. Mm-hmm. It's like personal. It's definitely spiritual and evangelical. And I've gone back to read and it doesn't hold up. But something about the raw, it felt very raw. And that yeah. kind of sparked my interest in like books that were maybe a little bit off the beaten path that I was used to at the time. Um, so I think reading that, it kind of led me into reading in general. And I started like one of my early, early on, I was reading The Rumpus, um, yeah. like early Stephen Elliott stuff. Mm-hmm. I realize there's controversy around him now, but at the time, back in the day, he was he had this thing called the Daily Rumpus. He would send out, yeah. um, and, and I was obsessed website. with it. Yeah, it was huge. It was, and it was the first web, like website I knew of that was like lit, like just literary. I'm sure there were other ones, but like it wasn't like the New Yorker or like the Atlantic yeah. that just seemed so far off. Like the Rumpus seemed like something else that I hadn't seen before. Um, it was super exciting. And so I read all every essay that was on the rumpus. I think it was some early, like, did you ever read Nick Flynn? Uh, I have not. I know of Nick Flynn. But I haven't read a lot of him, no. He has the all-time greatest book title. Oh, uh, yeah. My wife's got that on the bookshelf. What is it? Some another sh- Bullshit Night in Suck City. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the rumpus got me into, like, people like Nick, Nick Flynn. Um, I was reading Stephen Elliott's, like, newsletter at the time. Um and that just kind of, yeah, led into, I was like kind of reading HTML giant. I think all of that led me into Hobart. Um, and by that point, I think I'd started submitting and I actually got something onto Hobart early on under a fake name. I have to talk to Birch about this sometime. But I'll never <laughs> Does he tell know him it's what, you? No, he, he doesn't know it's me. Amazing. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, I had my first thing published there under a different name. And that's when I started thinking like, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to be addicted to this forever now. <laughs> Well, speaking of Aaron Birch, I feel like, um, you know, we all probably owe him some money for how much he promotes certain books that he loves. And like your like duplex, I feel like he was just like dropping tweets about it left and right for a while there, which is how I first read about it and got to, you know, read your work for the first time. I'm curious about like duplex, like did duplex start as a bunch of shorter things that you had already submitted and then you kind of gathered them all together? Like how did you connect uh, with Michael to make this? into a book like i'm, I'm curious about that arc how yeah. did that happen well you know it's funny about the first thing you said about aaron birch kind of championing the thing he tracked me i at awp this last year i was walking down the like in the book fair and he like jumped up on me and we started talking <laughs> we'd already kind of talked jumped a up bit. like on your back <laughs> yeah like on my back and just started like riding me like a po- like a pony um <laughs> no, but i forget i i think i was just think i just thanked him so much for for being such a like champion for duplex because it made a huge difference like i think he's the reason anybody found it it was it was so cool and even just him reading it i was geeked out about because i'm just a huge fan of that guy and he goes uh yeah i think he says there's like two like novellas that i've really championed in my career duplex and cults of loretta yeah for sure (laughs) i was like oh me and kevin are kind of like your godsons then i guess because you kind of popped these off for us yeah no i don't think anyone would know about cult of loretta if aaron hadn't tweeted about it constantly i mean yeah amazing word of mouth kind of promotion i guess he sent me when wheaton we we sent it to we sent duplex to him to to blurb and he really was on a plane i think and then he sent that blurb into wheaton and then Wheaton sent it to me, and I literally like I cried. I could oh. like I can't believe that he liked it, let alone was willing to endorse it with like with a blurb. Let alone did I know how he how much he was gonna like push it. it it's been such a it's been so cool. I, I love that guy. So yeah, like how did how did that book turn? Was you know it's your writing style's 
it feels like everything's a non sequitur, which makes me wonder <laughs> about how you, but like, then there's these threads running through it that make it clear that it couldn't have just been a bunch of different essays, you know, because yeah. things keep recurring. So I'm curious, how did, how do you, how did that book get assembled and how did you end up um, at autofocus? Yeah, the non sequitur thing makes total sense because it really was, I had written a different book in 2020, um, like a longer book that I wrote on purpose. Um, and I got to the end of 2020 and looked at it and it was just, I hated it. It was just, I, I'm not a good, I'm just not, in a lot of ways, not a good writer at all. Like if I'm doing something on purpose, I telegraph it so far in advance. Like you can <laughs> see it coming forever. Yeah. And I'm like trying to be sneaky and sneak up on it. And I, it's just when you, when I go back and read it, it's just so dead on the page. And so like duplex, I had, just, I, I had just been writing essays all the time and submitting them. Um, and at the end of 2020, I was like, what if I just take every essay that has any mention of the duplex in it, put them all together into a little chat book and see how those feel. And it was like five essays at the time, I think. And when I put them together, I saw this interesting thing happen, which is because I'm usually writing somewhat live about my life, like often I'll be writing about something that just happened sometimes that morning or sometimes that week. Uh, it says it's not very far in the past. So I realized if you go back, if you string them all together, there's a natural narrative arc that happens just through the course of a life, just yeah. through you continuing to think about an idea that's it's, it was just on my mind at the time. And I didn't realize that it had infiltrated these essays in so many different ways. And when I put them all next to each other, they, there was a lot of non sequitur, which I actually found exciting. I, it, to me, it almost gave me like a, when I read it, even though I'd written them, I didn't quite know how these were going to feel like, and what was going to happen and what they were really saying, like what the point was. Um, yeah. uh, which I felt like was the ideal reading experience. And maybe the only way for me to write something interesting is to do it accidentally. I think I've always had that thought, like if I'm ever gonna write a book, it's gonna be an accident. And so Duplex really was, I just like happened to put all these pieces together. And I think what holds it together is just, they happen all in the same place kind of. Like, yeah. That's about it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Cause like, you know, I one thing I noted when I read Duplex um, is that the, you know, one of if there is like a through line that's a little more serious, it's that it becomes pretty clear that the narrator has a drinking problem. But it's always <laughs> discussed like in the like another person might write a, a memoir about being an alcoholic, but it's just like you might give as much attention to the IKEA furniture more so than you will. And then, oh, yeah, and then I drank, you know, a half a gallon of vodka or something. <laughs> yeah. And then you move right through that. So I'm curious about like. Is, is that something you do intentionally to have these maybe more serious things looming in the background, but they're sort of like only seeing it out of the corner of your eye or kind of brush through in a funny way and then move on to something else? <laughs> I think that it's possible that you could see duplexes being written by an alcoholic who didn't know he was an alcoholic yet. Okay. Um, because I didn't it get... Was it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That basically was the case. I mean, yeah, I got I quit drinking the month it came out. Okay. mostly because a few people had said like oh wow this character's an alcoholic and i was like oh yeah, yeah the character yeah <laughs> yeah that character has a real problem for sure i got interviewed by another podcast and the guy started off right away like let's talk about your alcoholic book duplex and i was like man i didn't realize it was that obvious but okay <laughs> especially because i had gone back through and taken out a lot of drinking because i was like this is too much drinking yeah but um to your point I don't intentionally try to weigh things down or lighten them up. I think if anything, I have thought before, like, uh, 
I generally don't feel like an essay's done until I find what's kind of funny about it. So yeah. I think a lot of times they probably do start from maybe a darker place and then they get lightened up and then the a little darkness goes a long way I yeah. found. Um, and so I, I try to like just talking about being a good like host, like I don't want to fucking bum people out like and yeah. I don't want to hit them over the head with something so obvious um, that they can clearly see for themselves. Everybody who read that book is like, OK, well, this guy has a clear drinking problem. So, like, I don't need to telegraph that to you. Um, and I want to give you a good time. I want people to have a good time and leave happy that they spent a couple hours in there. So, Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things I love most about your writing is that, like, I feel like the thing that the narrator is looking at is often the most random thing in the world. But the humor is in the voice and in, like, the sort of nihilism that the narrator brings to every <laughs> subject. You know, the yeah, sort of, yeah. what does it matter? We're all going to die. Yeah. Um, which, like, I think we should pivot. So you you have a new book coming out called Cul-de-Sac, which, uh, first of all, I want to say um, that's an amazing title. And it, like, <laughs> dovetails so nicely with Duplex. And I, like, I like got, uh, you know, an advanced copy, and I told my wife uh, about it. And she's like, oh, fuck, that's such a good title. Damn. Oh, God, thank God. <laughs> so thank congratulations God. on that. Um, Thanks. The title was a big difficulty. And I'm not, I'm just not good at naming things. Yeah, uh, we had it. We had a different title at first. Uh, I really wanted to call it Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs> That's but kind there was, of amazing. <laughs> yeah, there was a copyright issue. Yeah, you imagine? You think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, then I was like, I got way too, it, I don't know if you get like this with your books that like, if you get a title in your head, it's kind of hard to change it. Like, yeah. it's like, that kind of felt like I, especially with duplex i actually felt like the title was like that was a big part of people knowing what they were getting into like it's called duplex it's in a duplex you can't miss it like yeah. this is what it's about so i'm glad to hear that the 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 um title worked out luckily like, my wife when i told her it was gonna be called cul-de-sac like that's my favorite word because she's like canadian and speaks french and apparently cul-de-sac means literally like the bottom of the sack and she's like <laughs> she just thinks that's hilarious so yeah yeah, I'm glad it worked. So, like, you know, um, did you? I mean, I like I said, I think those titles dovetail so well together. Does it? Does that mean like, and it, and the voice is very clearly like the same as Duplex. Yeah. Do you Do you think of this as like a sequel, or is it just like more thoughts about like? Do you imagine? You know, did you ever think about like pivoting and writing a sci-fi novel instead, or did you already know that like, oh, there's more here that I need to go into? I think of it at this point. It's I definitely see it as a continuation. So much so that I wanted to purpose i wanted everyone else to pretty clearly see that too like though even the way there's pictures in it it's like the same length um i want i didn't want people to think like oh he just is redoing duplex like it's just the yeah. same thing um but i have come to real peace with the fact that like i'm a very limited writer like i don't have a lot of abilities here i can't <laughs> I, i'm not gonna write um, a red-headed pilgrim i'm not gonna write a novel like you've been able to do like I've tried, it, it just feels wrong. And I've kind of yeah. like settled into this, like, I just want to write about my life and be as interested in what's going on in my life as I can and make essays out of it and then see what those books become unintentionally. But with a kind of eye towards like, usually I'm looking like for, are, is this laddering up to a larger idea? But I like lately, like I've been more like inspired by like the David Sedaris's of the world. Yeah, yeah. Which like, 
he doesn't do new things. I think he has he's done short stories, but like mostly you buy a David Sedaris book and you know what you're getting. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of down for that. <laughs> I mean, myself. I personally love that as like a reader or a consumer of art. And I've read interviews with some musicians where they're like, you know, you record, you spend like, you know, 15 years finding your voice or your sound, you record an album or you write a book. And then everybody's like, oh, what are you gonna do next? It has to be totally different, you know? Totally it different. You got to throw sense. it out, yeah. start over. But it has be to be something out in like... like one to two years, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Find it all over again, but then don't be so different that people can't connect. Yeah. Like, oh, you lost the thing people loved about you. It's an impossible ask. It's it's crazy, dude. Like, even with like, I'm so proud of how Duplex did, and I I I, I do feel like it was successful. But I'm also aware that we're talking about a uh, we're grading on a curve here. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like not the same as you know, like a big five publisher book coming out or like a 1975 album or like a, you know. And none of us are Beyonce, right? Like, I mean, yeah, even if you're the most famous writer, you can still go to the grocery store, you know? You're still a nobody. And even I saw how much my thinking was, how easily it would have been, it is to warp your thinking around like, well, what do people expect now? Like, what do they want? What do my fans want from me now? Like, even though it's like- Cheering at your door. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how these kids who pop off at 19 or 20 and need to like the vampire weekend guys, some of these people like who are getting international attention and have to keep a level head on their shoulders to try to make something else that's honest and interesting and beautiful. Like I have so much respect for anyone who can do like it's a it's so confusing really quickly as soon as anybody starts noticing what you're doing. Yeah, you've probably experienced that. Like I feel like you. Like I reread Cult of Letter recently, actually, and I'm actually pretty like the way that that one dovetails into Redheaded Pilgrim. Um, it feels cohesive in a way, yeah. although like clearly like you saw a bigger mountain to climb with Redheaded Pilgrim. Yeah, but oh, go ahead. Did you have that at all too? Like Cult of Loretta, I feel like did pretty amazingly for a novella from like an indie publisher. Yeah, and then Redheaded Pilgrim's like a big pub. Like that's a lot of attention. Did you have a hard time keeping your head on your shoulders about like being honest to what you want to make? Um, yeah, I think I had, I mean, you know, there was like eight years between those two books coming out and most of what I was doing, I was writing the whole time, but I think I read it or Cult of Loretta was like an accident. You know, I, I like in a similar way as maybe what you're describing, I'd written a few short stories and they just seemed to be about the same thing. And then it like, yeah. like, I think I, I tracked the point I put these three stories together to the point I had a first finished draft and it was like 11 days and it was just really quick. And I'm yeah. like, that was like a gift from somewhere, but now I have to like, <laughs> be like, is that what I do? Like, what's, is this my voice right. now? Is this, do I write about this world? But I think- And you just, yeah, what did you decide? Like that? that's a tough, like it's when you, I've noticed like, there's so little attention to go around in our world yeah. that when you get some, it would be very easy to think like, I've nailed it. Don't change the formula, Kevin. This is what worked. Do it again. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, uh, and I think you'll be able to appreciate this. Like the only, I think there's a lot of Dennis Johnson in Cult of Loretta in, but mm-hmm. obviously I'm going to steal from his voice. I love like the way he writes, but um, I realized like, I don't, I haven't lived this like crazy, crimey, drug filled life. You know, like I go to the grocery <laughs> yeah. store and like make Minnesota soup from scratch, you know? <laughs> And so I think yeah. like the challenge I posed to myself is like, can I keep the like zaniness and the high octane kind of like 
humor but apply it to i mean it's still like a lot about fucking up but it's less into that dark world than my first book was and i think even more so on the new thing i'm working on i'm like okay can it be about really like me and something that feels more like my life and um that's what i love about your writing is that you're able to bring um you know i think maybe like a lot of people who write in any litter talking about drugs and parties and addiction and stuff and i love that you're writing about <laughs> whole foods you know like <laughs> it's so refreshing to me that you have this like ability to bring that sort of darkness to like the suburbs <laughs> whole foods. yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah i appreciate that i honestly feel like it's i guess i'm i've as I've read more and maybe what turned me on to lit in the first place was always books that were able to find something worth talking about in, in the nut in like the nothing that's going on. Yeah. I've, I know like a few amazing writers, most of them go into screenwriting actually, but they love big stories and big characters and big problems and conflicts. And like, um, I don't Yeah, like that just doesn't remind me of my life at all. Like my life is on a day to day level so dull and so repetitive and like i'm like in a i've been with my wife for 15 years like i'm not dating around i had a drinking problem but we got that figured out like i'm not but i want this to be important too like i think so much of the reason i write is almost a like spiritual exercise and trying to prove that like this can matter too (laughs) And I don't need to pretend something else is going on. Like, if you look closely at your mundane suburban life, there's something beautiful and weird and fucked up and exciting going on here, too. Uh, That's, like, maybe the only thing that I get so stoked about doing anymore. And I think that's why these two books, and I am going to guess, I could be wrong, but what I do from now on is probably going to be in that vein of, like, I am trying to make this see what matters here um as not just for literary purposes but maybe just as a way of finding meaning in life overall yeah i want to ask you about a a theme that runs through cul-de-sac um or maybe just like something you keep coming back to is you're having it's the narrator is having health assessments done through work and they're not good you know which is part of what leads him (laughs) to maybe cleaning up his act a little bit and you know I think I'm, you know, I, you must have been living rough for a while there because you're the problems you're describing. I'm having now at 46, and I think you're about 10 <laughs> years younger than me. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so my question is like, you know, like w- how did you see like the 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 role of your own health in this book and like and like, but it's not necessarily a book about being terrified about dying. I don't like, but it has as existentialism in it. You're not specifically necessarily talking about a fear of death, but you're talking about like your body falling apart and how everything's meaningless. So I'm curious, like, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, what was your role? What was your, like, were you thinking about your health a lot when you were writing this? I definitely was partly because I had had a few, uh, well, partly cause the, I had gotten sober right around the time I started writing the book. It's in the book a little bit. Um, but, um, that, and along with that, the the health assessments did start me thinking about like, I mean, for most of my 20s, you just go to these health assessments and just assume clean bill of health every time, yeah. like no problem, checks down the, the page. And as soon as you get like the, the one or two warning signs that like something's looking off here, um, you might need to change your life a little bit. I feel like it's easy, like it, you start seeing your body in such a different way, which I think is what I started doing uh in reality like because i'm diabetic as well i don't know i think i talked about in the book yeah you mentioned there's a few things that make me very aware of the metrics of my body like 
I can scan this thing and I can see how much sugar is in my blood at any time. Like your blood pressure is like this hard and fast number, like about uh, how healthy you are. And so I think I started thinking about my body in literary terms, like as the container for the story, like duplex, it's clearly the duplex. We don't really leave it. And then I was thinking about cul-de-sac in a way it's the, the neighborhood that is the container, but also my body is too. Like this is the setting is I'm inside of this thing and it's not running great. Uh, it's, and it's, it's affecting the way that I make decisions and the way that I see a, a clock ticking down on how long this is going to last. So I do think health was over the past couple of years has been a, a very like thick lens that I've seen reality through. And it's honestly, even with my father-in-law's recent like stroke, that too, like seeing that like later in life stuff, how brutal it is. You just start seeing your your body differently, yeah, in a creepy way, in a way I, I don't, I'm not in, I don't like it, but <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the reality. Yeah, Maybe the sooner, down, yeah, yeah, it, it will, it will break down. Yeah, uh, it's no good. Yeah, and I, part of what I love about the way you write about these things, both like living in the suburbs and inhabiting a body. And I love this perspective when narrators do this, but it's almost like an alien was suddenly like transported into a human body and having to describe what it feels like, you know? <laughs> like right, you have yeah. this real way of writing about like basic things as though no one has, ever, you're like you're an archeologist, but you're discovering the present, you know? Like, oh, here's a yeah. lawnmower, what does that do? Or, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm just curious, like where does that, is that just part of how you see the world or are you like a curious person in general? I love actually. I remember re hearing an interview with Aaron Birch where he had said that he's just not a curious person. I heard that and too. I, tw <laughs> I tweeted at him and I said I loved it so much because I I don't feel super curious like a like a particularly curious person. Yeah. Um, in a in the way that like there are very few things I look at and I want to know more about them. Yeah. Like I don't really want to like if I see I'm not naturally interested in almost anything, but there's usually one or two things at any given time that I'm just fascinated with. Like whether it's an author that I'm diving into, like a band, there's something holding my attention, but I don't have that ability to just focus my attention on any given thing and be interested in it. Which I think honestly is like maybe most of what I feel like I'm trying to do when I'm writing, I was just like, every time I start a new essay, there's usually a week or two when I'm just like throwing paragraphs at the page and seeing what sticks. And usually what I'm trying to figure out is like, what am I even, interested in right now like yeah. what do i care about what what's actually on my mind i think it's like i also heard this interview with like mike do you know who mike Bur burbiglia is uh he's a comedian right yeah, yeah he's a comedian i think he was talking to pete holmes but he was saying how like he can tell when a comedian is talking about something that's not on their mind they're just doing a bit yeah. like they're doing the moves but it's not coming from a place of actual interest and so like i think maybe because of my lack of curiosity in general that I'm like kind of a large part of the exercise. I feel like I'm going through it on the page is like trying to find what I am interested. What are those two things right now that I actually care about, whether it's like my health or moving into this place or a book or Ikea furniture, like Whole what foods. is kind of sparkle <laughs> Whole Foods. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I think it, if one thing it makes me, what I love about writing is that like, it is a great reason to have your like radar up and to pay attention to your life. Like Jesus Christ, so much time can so many, when I look back, I think it's why I write so live. Like I don't really write about what happened five or six years ago because I also don't have a great memory and yeah. it's just gone. And so I try to, 
pay attention because I feel like it's, you know, otherwise it'll just be over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so earlier you mentioned um, David Sedaris and then you just mentioned Mike, uh, what's his last name? Berbiglia. And, and like, I think you're like the funniest writer out there. Like, you know, like, I, <laughs> like Chelsea Martin also, I think is a like hysterical writer. But like, I mean, when I read your books, I'm just like, oh, this so many books now say they're funny and very few of them to me are actually like I'm laughing in the bathtub out loud. And my wife's like, what's going on in there? I'm like, I'm, I'm reading this book. And, um, yeah. And so I'm curious, did you, was there, you know, for, I remember reading something about George Saunders, I believe that he, uh, he was like trying to write really heady, long, intense fiction. And then one day he wrote something silly and stupid and his wife found it and he heard her laughing in the other room and she was like, why don't you do this? And he was like, no, 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 no. That, that's <laughs> yeah. my stupid thing. And like, he had to like learn to lean into that. And I think similarly, yeah. like I wrote terrible Raymond Carver knockoffs for years before I like answered a Hobart call for like a silly story about a, you know, horror Christmas story. And I made, wrote a comedy and then people liked it. And I'm like, wait, is that what I should wait, be doing? Does this count? Yeah, yeah. Does this count? Is this actual literature? You know? So I'm curious, yeah. like, did you always kind of look up to funny fiction and aspire to it or did you sort of like stumble in it through the back door you know i definitely think it was a back door thing man i think i'm like you i wanted to be more serious i wanted to be more fucked up than i was <laughs> right when i first started like writing alt lit was really big like the tao lin stuff mm -hmm. and like the i forget who those other writers were but there's that real deadpan style yeah. um, where they acted like they had no emotions at all um, yeah and maybe created the least funny books ever <laughs> or some of them are unintentionally funny yeah. but like um, i think they weren't going for funny at all they were just trying they were reporting and in ways i still think that's a really cool mode to be in yeah. but that's where my like i wanted to be i guess really i wanted to see, seem smart like the writers that i that i liked like annie dillard or like joan didion um i was really turned on by renata adler these people that just seem like hyper intelligent hyper able to quote from things really good at like having a point and all these things that like i i thought that's what writing was supposed to be and in ways i still have to work against it like there's part of me that still just wants to look really fucking really smart on the page and i have to catch myself from me like i would never say that i didn't know that i had to look that up like really like force myself to, like limit myself to like i try to do almost no research yeah. like because i want to work with the material i already have access to um so yeah, it, yeah, probably similar to you. It wasn't until like I maybe wrote a few things for Hobart. I remember I wrote this one like it was like one long paragraph about getting my car repaired, um, and I didn't know Aaron Birch at the time. But there's one. It was kind of funny, I guess, because uh, it was a similar stance to like duplex and cul-de-sac about me just not knowing how basic shit works. Yeah, and like. Birch quoted it online and said like he thought it was the best thing he'd read that week and I was like well this is what I'm doing now I guess this is, I'm gonna be a funny guy <laughs> funny guy now amazing and so yeah I mean I think similarly you know you were saying that you wished you were more fucked up or something like but you live yeah. this very like you know sort of suburban safe life and I think that's part of like I said you know a little bit earlier that What's inspiring is because I feel like I often feel like I'm reading about people who are living safe lives, trying to write more about the darkness. And whereas yeah. like, I feel like you lean in. And was that like a discovery you had to make as well? Like, oh, I don't have to act like I'm going to parties all the time if I'm actually just watching TV with my wife at night, you know? Absolutely. For sure. I actually 
there's this quote I love, one of my favorites ever. It's Allen Ginsberg in the Paris Review from like the 60s. Um, and basically, I'll send you the quote after. I won't get the whole thing right. But he says like his least favorite writing is writers like performing writing. And mm -hmm. they're acting, they're pretending to be interested in things that they're not actually interested in. Instead of writing about, he calls it their quotidian inspired lives. And then he quotes Whitman, who has this line about no fat, uh, there's no sweeter fat than sticks to my own bones. Uh, and it took me a while to get what that he meant. But I think what he's saying is like, well, he says it in the quote. He's like, um, like the true work of a writer is to realize that your life is just as good of material as anything else. Yeah. And I, I think that's been for sure. My journey is like a writer is to not yeah, to, to realize that this is worth writing about and worth taking notes on. And that because this, this things in my life don't feel as foreign and sexy because of shopping at Whole Foods. Even Whole Foods is sexier than maybe the place I usually shop, which is a place called Tom Thumb. Like um, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Or that like I, yeah, <laughs> uh, that those things are worthwhile too. But it's it's weirdly hard to do because like the things in your own life don't seem in any way like worth writing about or like what who would care about them. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard to overcome that insecurity. I mean, I think, yeah, for me, that's been, I, I think that's my life's journey as a writer is trusting that what I think of are my boring, most boring moments, like are often the most relatable to other people because they're having their own boring moments, but Absolutely, nobody's talking dude. about it, you know? They're not, they feel like their boring moments make them weird or dull or some, like a, the most boring person at the party. But weirdly, that's probably the most relatable thing that happened to them that day. Exactly. And when I think that's why I, you wonder, like, when people tell a story, they're usually telling you something that happened once in their like something so off the map that, like, of course it's fascinating because you've never heard this before. Yeah. This is crazy. Um, but you don't relate to it. You're just entertained by it. Um, but it's like when people are telling you the mundane things, like the secrets. This is another Mike Berbiglia quote, I think. He says, like, if we're not telling secrets, what are we doing? Um and that's how I like to feel on like when I'm reading some something on the page. Not that it's like confessional. I think the secret sometimes that like I did nothing today. Like I'm not an interesting person. I have dumb thoughts. I don't know how my air conditioner works. Like yeah. I don't know who to call about my car not working. How do you get something towed? Like the embarrassment of my complete like incompetence in my life when like if somebody else can relate to that, it's such a relief to me because sometimes I feel so unqualified to be an adult <laughs> and so how much i'm curious about like when you're creating these you know comic little vignettes drawn straight from your life and you're saying you're writing like something that happened that morning and when you get enough together that you're like okay i think i've got there's like a book coming together here is there for you a lot of shuffling around or is the like journal-like quality of i woke up today and here's what happened become the structure Great question again. So I think I got spoiled by duplex because it, it came together so easily, maybe like Cult of Loretta a little bit that like, I literally just chronologically put all the essays I'd written that year about the duplex in order. And they kind of popped like they kind of worked. Um, and then Michael helped me at I think we doubled the length. But they're all pretty much chronological. There was no real shuffling, um, a little bit of editing and it was done. Um, and I was a little insecure about how easy it was, rightfully so, because when it came to doing cul-de-sac, it didn't work it, that way again. Yeah. Like, I put them all chronologically, and they were just a mess. Like, it just didn't work. Like, that was kind of, that's not always the way it's going to be. So for cul-de-sac, I rearranged that thing probably 
60 times, just frantically moving whole essays around, moving paragraphs around, moving sentences, taking things out, like trying to find some right order where these things would kind of light up. And I got like, I was having like some panic attacks about it because sometimes it just wasn't yeah. like, and it, it's weird with stuff like, it can be a little like what when it what finally ended up working were just a few little moves and all of a sudden i felt like somehow that this has clicked into place yeah. but one thing i did with this one i think i heard bud smith say he does did this too with the book but like especially when i was getting a little frantic like this isn't working it doesn't feel right i printed out all the material i think it was like twenty thousand words or thirty thousand, and i just retyped it starting from the beginning but I was so familiar with the material at the time that I could like move in between pieces mm. really effortlessly. And so things that were sometimes on page 70 ended up being like the first opening paragraph yeah. or like the stories would get rearranged to make more sense together. So this one really got worked over yeah. really heavily. Um, and that last like retyping was actually hugely helpful because like almost like trying to recreate that cult of Loretta compressed time frame of making something that almost will demand a cohesion just because you're in the same headspace for such a short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of read, I kind of did that with this cul-de-sac one, um, just to get it to work. So that, that's what I did with this one. I also don't think I've like, I haven't written enough books to know how you're supposed to do it yet. I don't I think got anybody knows no matter how many books you've written. I, f I felt so stupid. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's a book. I was talking to Adam at one point about it. I was like, I don't know what a good book. How am I supposed to know? No one told me, yeah. no one told me what a book is. And now I I'm supposed to be done with one. And like, a month and i don't know if it's a book or not i feel like that's the secret right is that like uh you know there's like probably if you want to write a straight fantasy novel there is like a little bit of a formula you got to follow but if you're yeah. just writing a book i i think it's like the one thing you could do well you know one of the few things you can do in life where there's no roadmap there's no rules and you have to figure Nothing. out what the rules are as you're building it you know which is it's so hard to know yeah how do you know like that was i was gonna ask i don't know yeah i don't know how you're supposed to know and i don't know like I, it's so hard because it's it takes so long like to know if it's working you have to like reread yeah the whole fucking thing again that takes for goddamn ever and i don't know about you but i have to let it sit yeah. for like a week maybe before i can actually read it fresh um and it oh man yeah it, it can be a real mind fuck and then you're like how do i know when it's done what am i supposed to feel like oh i think all i wanted like you said like i feel like i'm just playing by ear i don't know how to how to do this at all i just want somebody to get to the end and feel like they spent their time well and it's such a nebulous ass yeah it's so hard to to know yeah and I, I yeah what you're saying about having to wait a week you know like i find like you know when i'm writing short stories it's almost like one has to be put on the shelf and you work on something else or if it's like on a novel it's almost like you work on the beginning and then at some point you just set that aside and jump to like the ending and work on that and be like, I can't look at those chapters for like at least 10 days. <laughs> you do. You have to let them like cool on the windowsill yeah, for a while because yeah. like they're not ready to look at again yet. And I'm curious how like when you're moving all these things around, some of the jokes, you'll like set them up and then they pay off again. Like, you know, yeah. uh, like 10 page later when you go back to that earlier joke, you know? Yeah. And I'm curious, do you discover those kind of by accident during the editing or do they usually just come out on a first draft? You have to make sure that they like stay funny when you move things around. There are some like very, there's been a few like very lucky ones that like, especially if it's between pieces, because a lot of them I didn't write knowing that the next one was coming or even remembering that the last one I, I had done. So sometimes weirdly there would be this synchronicity of like a joke set up in one essay that i pay off two essays later totally accidentally yeah. but just because like i was saying like 
it's just because that was on my mind at that time. Like they were probably written within six months of each other. So like I was just thinking about furniture or whatever the hell, or thinking about walking around in circles or, or whatever. Um, but then some of them do need some, like they do need to be a little bit more intentionally placed or massaged to like, to because so, so, sometimes I'd repeat the same joke or pay it off, but with slightly different language. Yeah. And it just doesn't pop the way, like that's something I've been rereading a lot of Vonnegut. And he's so good at verbatim quoting himself later so that you yeah. remember exactly what he said like a hundred pages before. But he said it in such a weird way that when he re-says it in that weird way verbatim, like the joke lands. Yeah. His like setting up of the so it goes, you know, throughout uh, Unbelievable. Slaughterhouse-Five yeah. and like creating his own world around a joke and it becoming a little bit and then using yeah. it in really like dramatic tragic scenes and it still lands you know like oh my god dude yeah i get chills thinking about it like he created his own little joke that end up in a lot of ways i think makes the whole book land yeah. like so it goes is almost the message of the whole thing but it's so dashed off and offhand oh god he's so good dude yeah I, yeah <laughs> i get upset I, i'm curious about an, another writer that is not as funny, but um, I think it's somebody I've seen you post about is uh, a fans notes by Frederick X. Oh my god! Like, oh, man, which yeah. like I feel like that's a book that when I read it, I'm like, oh, I want to structure my stuff like that, and then I tried, and it just all fell apart because it's like it feels like a work of magic. It's yeah. crazy. Have you like if you re I've read that book many times, and I don't think it was until like I if you'd asked me maybe after three reads like about the structure, I'd say, I think it's pretty straightforward. Like he has a heart attack and then he goes back and kind of like kind yeah. of standard memoir structure. It is not, yeah. it is a huge mess. It's a ridiculous, like it shouldn't work it shouldn't at all. Work. Yeah. He, he like moves back and forth between time. The chapters are crazy long. He ends up in a mental hospital twice and it's kind of confusing what happens in the first time or the second time. Like the time just, re it, it's an absolute mess. And it is one of the most compelling raw honest in a lot of ways funny i'm with you it's not like as it doesn't snap crackle and pop the way that like a vonnegut or sedaris does but he does approach his life with this like um i guess ability to make fun of himself or see himself as the butt of the joke that uh i think any writer who's been doing this for any amount of time realizes that's the essential ingredient yeah like if you think you're the hero of this story you're going to come off like an asshole and if you're if you make yourself the butt of the joke it's going to go better on the page. So like, although I've read, I don't Did you read that, um, that biography of him? I did. I'm trying to remember if I finished or not. It was so bleak that I made it like, I know. and I was reading it, um, in Panama on my honeymoon where like dolphins <laughs> yeah. were leaping. And I'm like, why am I yeah. reading about this sad? This is the worst possible way to do it. It yeah. worked somehow. Yeah. Cause it seems like reading the book and reading about his life, like, and trying to read his other books that he was pretty unself-aware yeah. like he was pretty up his own ass yeah. um and like didn't really realize that he was the butt of the joke in real life but something about a fan's notes he was able to just capture something in a way that uh I, it was it's a piece of magic and you can tell it's a piece of magic because he tried to do it two other times and it didn't quite work yeah no, i've tried to read those books and they're terrible but yeah they're they're awful <laughs> but it's like you can see like okay this is almost it but like it didn't work that it time. sounds like him but it didn't work yeah. that time i gotta say there's just kind of a, uh, like a crap shoot yeah like i and what's I, part of the reason i ask is because i feel like i was like rereading cul-de-sac and seeing like a moment where you're doing some of that like seamless drifting that i think is like so hard to do where 
it's a moment when someone like you're like oh i met my buddy at the coffee shop my wife and i used to live upstairs and then you're not talking about the coffee shop it doesn't come back until like <laughs> yeah, three paragraphs yeah. later and i'm like yeah. that's so it's, to me that's really a difficult juggling act when you like take your reader somewhere and then the way you describe it be- takes over and then you yeah. jump back in later and you're like, Oh, that's right. Yeah. We're at a coffee shop right now. I forgot, you know? So it can be really hard to do. I do think Exley does it incredibly well. There's something I read when I was rereading it recently, there's something he calls back. I think it's 200 pages later. He goes on <laughs> such an insane tangent. Um, I think it includes him like going, he goes to like this football game and ends up meeting this like weird, like, like Presbyterian family or something like it's in, it goes so long and at never at no point are you like when are we going to get back to the point like it feels like this is the point the whole time and it's not until he sort of wraps it up that you realize how far around the bend he took to get here yeah um it also makes me think of have you read uh rings of saturn no. by sebald it is a magic trick of losing the point like of not being able to stay on topic um Check it out. It, it's pretty dense, but it's like he starts in like a mental hospital and kind of tracks h- how he got there. But he's moving between like art history and criticism and like weird like anecdotes. And uh, you can't see the seams like you, I can't see the cuts and he'll just end up somewhere that you just do not expect. Like that's the thrill of it. Yeah, that's like the it's like a extended like shredding guitar solo of a guy just like riffing for 300 pages and you're like i don't know what the melody is but this is like <laughs> it's good an incredible thing yeah i'm 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 captivated yeah. so yeah i mean I, yeah i try to come back to some point if i can yeah <laughs> i'm curious about like so i feel like uh you know part of how i learned how to be a writer i don't have an mfa and i, I always say like oh i tended like the school of um, the other people podcast. Cause I would just like listen to all those. <laughs> totally. And that's when I learned about like Bud Smith was like writing novels on his phone while he was like at, yeah. on work breaks, eating a sandwich and then had to go back to his welding, you know? And I'm curious, yeah, yeah. like at the time I was like, Oh, that's, that's, that's crazy. And now I find myself like working on my novel novel on my phone in the bathtub. And I'm like, Oh, this kind of <laughs> works, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, where does your work get, written is it like usually when you're sitting at a desk or are you you writing all over the place or yeah i'm pretty obsessive about my like habit of writing i try i write like every morning between usually like six and eight or so yeah um on my laptop like this macbook i've had actually this one's new i've burned through a bunch of them for years i did it at starbucks because me and my wife lived in just like a one-bedroom apartment and i was working downtown so i'd like beat the traffic go sit at a starbucks and work for two hours um just like clockwork like i even if i finish something i start the new thing if i have like 30 minutes left like two hour just every day yeah uh, it's very boring it's not rock and roll at all it's just like i gotta do it otherwise i feel weird the rest of the day like it really bugs me if i don't do it yeah and i think magic i, I don't know I, I had to like i remember at some point and i think that's when i started getting better was when um i heard something from like Jerry Seinfeld, which I know he's also maybe a problematic person in some ways, but he was saying how there was a moment when he would like stayed out drinking and he had a hangover the next day and the construction workers outside were waking him up. And then he was like, wait, if I'm going to be a successful comedian, I need to be like waking up with the construction workers and clocking in, you know? Yeah, totally. And um, 
Yeah, so I don't know. I think it's interesting because I, I think it's a lot like going to the gym or something where the more you do it, the more it pays off, the easier it becomes. And if you totally. spend too much time away from it, you have to like re-loosen those muscles again, you know? I think also just the way that I'm interested in making work, kind of as we've been talking about, like I don't like having like a goal or like a point that I'm trying to make or I don't like having ideas. Like I like seeing what the work becomes like and what accidentally happens when I sit down or what accidentally sparks something that morning. Yeah. And the only way to make that type of work is to just be available. Like that's what I try to remind myself, especially on bad mornings when like I don't get anything, which has that like the last couple, uh, last week or so I was between essays and it's like, it's sometimes just hard to get going. And I just remind myself, like my job's not to write anything. My, I am sitting down just, I'm, he I'm available if something happens and it always will eventually. Yeah. Um, but I don't have, it's not like, Oh, I need to go get to work on that next part of the story or like on that next like chapter or like, man, I got to go get like my work done. Cause I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, and it, if, as soon as I do think I know what it is, as soon as I have some idea, I, it fizzles out. It never works. Like that's, I think why the whole, like whole like unintentionalist, that's why that was on my mind. Cause like the only th successful things I've done have been accidental. I'm just available and they'd work themselves out. But if I start getting to like, oh, I'm making something, I know where this is going. Yeah. It just magic dies. Yeah. Magic is gone. Which I think is just, I'm just not a pro. I think I'm just not a very unprofessional way to approach it. But maybe that is the professionalism is knowing not to try too hard. You know, I think, you know, cause it shows yeah. when people, uh, you know, overproduce things or I remember, you know, I'm like sort of famously on Twitter, a fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but mostly I'm a fan of like the guitarist, John Frusciante. And he was like- You're Excited about him coming back. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, he, uh, but I, he like, you know, was like had a heroin addiction. So he didn't make music for like eight to 10 years. And then he got back into it. And he said he like spent like a year, like engineering uh, what he thought was gonna be a perfect album. And when he listened to it at the end, he was like, it's kind of boring, isn't it? Like, and, and Dude, then he went back and listened to the Velvet Underground and he was like, that shit's full of mistakes, but it's yeah. so crackling and exciting. And he was like, oh, on the next album, I have to like let chaos back in, you know? Dude, this is my whole thing. Yeah. I, it's, it's so true. Like, I feel, I just feel like we're never, if you're ever smarter than the work, if you're in the driver's seat of it, unless you're just truly unbelievably like, brilliant and talented and funny yeah or doing a different type of work maybe something more academic like there's tons of great writing i'm sure that's done on purpose <laughs> but like um for the art that excites me it's usually the art itself i feel like is in the driver's seat in some way yeah. it's the exciting thing it's making the points and uh the writer or the creator is a little bit off the hook like you don't need to try to be smarter than the art the art will have its own intelligence and points and callbacks sometimes baked in. You just gotta be available and try to see them. Like try to, cult I, I really feel like, I don't have kids, I'm not gonna have kids. It's like, I think like what parenting would be, where it's like, you can't be like, I think you should be a scientist yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It's like, you gotta be like, kid, what are you? And help them like figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> so when you're yeah, like in cul-de-sac, uh, you know, you have like the things that like just kind of establish themselves and i'm like oh this is becoming an, a major character and like one of those is jamba juice 
And I'm like, like, it's, I'm like, is this becoming like the white whale of this book? You know, like, and I can't imagine you sat down one day and you're like, I want to, I want to write a book where Jamba Juice plays just a major role. Like that, yeah, Dude, yeah. yeah. like those things Absolutely just have to not. like come out of the chaos, right? They have to. And it, that's the most exciting part of it, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like that's the funnest part. Yeah. Is not knowing what's going to come out of this. And like another, like there's some line, oh gosh, I wish I'd written it down, but like, um, you just talk a lot in the book about how like, oh, other people are optimistic and whatnot. And you're like, there's just a real, like a bleak sort of pessimism running through the a book that is so funny and so light <laughs> in some ways. And I'm just yeah. curious, like, do you have like an active life philosophy or just do things just sneak in and it's also kind of chaos in there? Another great question, dude. When, okay, when I read this, when I started writing this book, I just read The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. Have you ever, have that. you heard of no. that one? So he wrote it. So he wrote it, I think, in '73, and it came out and won the Pulitzer Prize in '74. By which point, he was already dead. Of he wrote it while he was dying of colon cancer. But he was this like pretty well known um, psychoanalyst, and he wrote this book called The Denial of Death, which is basically I'm going to try to sound smarter than I actually am. It's like a it's like a pop book. Like, it's not an academic book. It was meant for the masses, and it basically his point is like a he's refuting Freud's idea that like all we want to do is like have sex with people and have sex with our moms. And that's what creates our personality. Yeah. Ernest Beckard's point is everything about you is determined by the fact that you're going to die and you can't admit that to yourself. <laughs> um, that there's no way for Kevin to conceive of a world without Kevin. Um, and so in order to protect your, yourself psychically, you create all these like, character traits that like oh kevin is like a reliable person or a creative person or like you have to do these things to make yourself feel like this one-of-a-kind person that can't possibly die even though you might say like i know i'm gonna die i might say that we don't know that yeah. we can't we just we were not clearly we're not living that way um and so if anything that especially at the time i was writing the book and still to this day is like a very controlling like i just read that and it made perfect sense to me that like and I think honestly, it's almost like a Vonnegut type, like absurdism yeah. that life, unfortunately is meaningless. Um, but we have to try to help each other get through this thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that like that Becker look about death being laced into everything. And I've talked to Wheaton about this a lot too, that like in ways that is kind of an animating force behind this literature of the mundane yeah. and like literature of the nothing and of the suburbs is that, yeah, nothing's happening, but also the stakes are still life and death. Like sure. Your neighbor is this weirdo that's putting out reindeer, but they're also, that's how they're spending their time. Like they've traded a part of their life to do that. Like the stakes are still high, no matter how you think you're living your life. We're playing with the same stakes here. So I think that does inform the way I think about a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, it feels almost, you know, Buddhist in a way of like, you know, if the more scared or the more aware you are of your own mortality, it, the only place to get, a, not get away from it, the only thing to do about that is to like sink deeper into the moment yeah. and be more alive yeah. in this moment. But like most of us are not going to be like driving in a car at 100 miles an hour. We're sinking deeper into the couch or we're like, yeah. you know, or we're sinking <laughs> right. deeper into our Whole Foods interaction. And but to bring that sort of like sparkling like, oh, I'm, you know, it, to the extent that we can be aware of death, like that's with me right now. And I'm trying to just really yeah. be in my body and really like experience this moment. Yeah. yeah. I think that is why like I the 
the the book kind of is bleak um but i i i tried i i don't want it to be a pessimistic book like i i do think that there's like a lot of beauty to be had and found and seen and a lot of funny things to happen and like it's it's like the bleakness that that gives us that beauty at the same time yeah, you know for sure um it was actually one thing so i had um amy fusselman i can't believe i get to like she reached out and was like hey i'll read any like a draft if you want me to check it out and amy fusselman's been one of my heroes forever and i sent it to her and she's the one that gave me the note that like uh it's a little little bleak especially <laughs> at the end i had a different ending i had this great i thought it's a really funny bit about how like uh the first like creature to crawl out of like the primordial ooze like took one look around and jumped right back into the <laughs> yeah. ocean but uh, that's how it ended and she was like ah it's a little bleak and she gave me just that one little note and then i reread the whole thing and i was like i don't know if we're not writing literature that's pointed that lifts some spirits in some way i don't really know what we're doing like yeah so but i think that's the anyway. paradox of your work is that like there's this bleak thread and yet i like I'm laughing the whole time and I feel lifted up by it. So I don't know how it accomplishes that, but like that, <laughs> some kind of, that's what I would hope. That's my best hope for it. Yeah. That, that it leaves you feeling a little bit, even Vonnegut says this, like why make art? And he says like, maybe it'll help people uh, appreciate life for a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, and then he says, does anybody, has anyone ever done it? And then he says the Beatles did it. So like there answer. is a way. For, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'm glad that it's not, I don't want it to be a bummer, but I think anything that does for me, that doesn't somehow acknowledge the stakes feels like a miss for me that I would be kind of like, oh, what's the point of writing? Also, what's the point of writing about something that doesn't acknowledge the fact that we're going to die? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's working. And, um, speaking of which, uh, like what we talked about this a little bit, you're like, you're, you're comfortable with your voice now. Like what, what are you working on right now? What's next? You know, what's, what are you looking at for your, your new work? Yeah. I kind of have been taking some time off of submitting. I haven't submitted anything. Partly I got a little spoiled with the column that I would just like send it to Adam every month and we'd get it out and we'd work on it together. And it just a little bit like spoiled me from like wanting to send stuff into slush piles or wait two years to hear back from the new yorker or something so i've just been stockpiling a lot of work right now um and it kind of is a little bit about some of the situation with my father-in-law and like re more recently moving into this house um so i could see there being another project that's just me living somewhere else now yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i might start sending some of these out maybe to some editors and see if there's anything there but i've really been enjoying like i think partly like, getting a book out kind of made me relax a little bit like i felt like i didn't have to prove to myself all the time that i was a writer by publishing yeah that i could like calm down for a second um and having knowing the second one's coming out it almost made me like i was like well maybe i just won't publish for a little bit so that when it comes out maybe people have like i'm not haven't been in their twitter feed all the time yeah. and it's like well maybe i'll spend like 15 bucks to see what this guy has to say at this point <laughs> yeah are you enjoying being in that like more generative like place without as hard of a goal in mind? Is it like playful? really enjoying it? Yeah. yeah. And like we talked about the value of letting something cool on the windowsill. Yeah. Like I used to, I would write an essay and then send it out a day later, like two days. Like I wouldn't let it cool that very much. Um, and so I'm seeing the value of like already, like I'll write a piece and realize like, I kind of like, this would be better if I, kind of synced it up with this other piece and now it becomes like a longer but deeper piece like giving myself a little bit more time to see 
like how I think about these pieces later on and like yeah it's actually been I've really been enjoying it I think at some point I need to like get off my ass and start trying to get these out there but writing without any thought of like publishing has been kind of a gift the last like six months or so I think it, I think it's been good I almost wonder if there's like a good pace there of like what if you do like six months on six months off in terms of like submitting like give yourself some time yeah. to generate and then like when you have like oh here's all my material does anyone want it but you're sitting on a bank of stuff you know maybe that's a better way of doing it i love the image of you just surrounded by pies cooling on the windowsill right <laughs> yeah. now. i got like 20 pies just cooling <laughs> everywhere and i'm about to have a huge bake sale <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was Kevin Maloney's conversation with Mike Nagel. We would all very much like it if you went to the Autofocus website, autofocuslit.com books, and grabbed a copy of Cul-de-Sac. And if you haven't read Duplex yet and you want to check that out along with it, you can get it in a discounted two-pack at the same website. And if you haven't read Kevin Maloney's novel, The Red-Headed Pilgrim, yet, I highly recommend you do that, too. You can get that novel anywhere you buy books, but in particular at the $2 Radio website. And if you feel like doing a little more listening today, you can check out my interview with Kevin on this podcast, which came out this time last year, around episode 82 or so. Other than that, hope your new year is off to a good start. If you're feeling rather generous with your time and mental space, maybe you could write a little review for the podcast or rate it wherever you listen. Or maybe just uh, tell some friends. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.